Hey, it's Jordan, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Our Unique Life. Today's guest was fantastic. Uh, it's Sarah Warner. She's a very accomplished podcaster, author, and she's got a audio drama named Girl in Space, which is spectacular. Um, but on top of all that, she's got a great story, too. She was bullied as a child and she talks about that and she talks about all the people that doubted her along the way and how she had to stick to her guns and stick to her path and grow and mature into the person that she is today and I hope you enjoy it and so let's just hop right in it has the power to unite people in a way that little us does supposed to say you know we're important and you're yeah. supposed to say it's all going to be all right at a 1.7 grade point average i hope none of you can relate <laughs> your unique simplifying minimizing growth junkie journey and i have to tell you i am filled with gratitude so much gratitude Always look for the people who are helping you to tell us. You'll always find somebody who's trying to help. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. My name is Jordan, and welcome to Our Unique Life. Hi, my name is Sarah Ray Werner, and I'm a writer. So where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, one of the best cities uh, on the planet. And I don't say that with any type of bias, except I am totally biased. <laughs> um, it's a great place. It's, it's a place um, where I think a lot of people don't believe in Cleveland, Ohio uh, as a city. It's sort of, you know, has this history of being the mistake on the lake. And um, I, I feel a, a deep kinship with this place where I grew up because I also uh, felt a little bit like I was a mistake and had to kind of fight through that. Um, so uh, I love Cleveland. It's got this really cool underground art scene, uh, writing scene, poetry scene, music scene. It's a beautiful place. So what was your family-like life? Um, did you have both parents, any siblings? I do. I have, um, both my parents are still living, so I have uh, my mother and my father. Uh, my dad was uh, in the military and then uh, left when he had kids and became a hospital chaplain. So I grew up in a very uh, conservative religious household. And then my mother was a nutritionist. She was trained as a nutritionist, but uh, she was a stay-at-home mom. And so she stayed at home with me and uh, I have three siblings, uh, two younger sisters and a younger brother, and um, pretty much my parents made the decision early on that we were going to be very uh, anti-materialistic. We were uh, we were not going to be a family that watched TV, and so uh, growing up was very interesting. Um, a lot of times if you have a family that can have a stay-at-home mom, they tend to be a little better off. Uh, my family was being supported by essentially a pastor, and there were six of us in Cleveland. And so uh, my parents just decided that, you know what, we were going to be uh, maybe a little bit poorer, but we were going to be uh, richer in character for it. So um, maybe that gives you a little bit of an illustration of how we grew up. Yeah, when I hear chaplain and nutritionist my first thought is oh man they were probably strict <laughs> <laughs> they were so strict oh they were so strict so oh, yeah so as a child with strict parents would you say there was anything that their their morals that they gave you or their rules that they had for you kind of bent you into a certain mold or what kind of a child were you um, I was a very obedient child, and part of me uh, st struggles against that today, but part of me 
likes that it gave me structure. I feel very torn about it. Um, and, and what a great question to ask, by the way. <laughs> um, so it, it's very weird. I grew up in this household of duality. And so, um, you know, we weren't allowed to watch TV, but we lived right down the street from the library. And, you know, it was the 80s and the, and the early 90s, and um, there weren't really helicopter parents. So even though my parents were strict, I was allowed to bike down or walk down to the library whenever I wanted, and I could check out any book I wanted. So we weren't allowed to watch TV, but we could read anything we wanted. And if, if you're a reader of books, and I, and I suspect that you are, um, if you're interested in stories and storytelling, uh, you know that uh, not all books are rated G. Just because a book is a book doesn't mean it uh, doesn't have the same sort of material that you would find on an R-rated television show or movie. And so... Um, so I read a lot, and I read as much as I could. I read as broadly as I could. Um, so I, I feel like I got a little bit, um, a, a little bit of a of a larger worldview than maybe my my parents knew that I was getting. Um, I still don't know the pop culture references, so I I can't you know quote Saved by the Bell or anything or whatever was going on at the time, but. Um, I don't know. I can talk to you a lot about the Babysitters Club and Nancy Drew and <laughs> whatever the heck else I was reading at the time. Um, so yeah, growing up, uh, it, it definitely affected me. We also had very strict curfew, so I was not allowed out of the house after eight o'clock. Um, that changed a little bit when I grew up, and I was allowed out until nine because the library closed at nine. Um, <laughs> but uh, what, what that did was it it forced a lot of family together time. And my parents would uh, make dinner in the evenings and then talk or whatever, do boring adult stuff. And the four of us, my two sisters and my brother and I, would all uh, hang out. And because we didn't have TV, we didn't have video games, and this was like way before cell phones were invented, um, we had books and we had each other. And so we would hang out, we would do plays, we would make up stories. Um, gosh, we would just do all sorts of stuff. Um, and, and what happened was we got really close, like all four of us. And to this day, uh, you know, I, I no longer live a life of uh, no TV and all of that stuff. I have a cell phone. Uh, so the, the four of us, we have a constant text and the four of us just text all day to each other. Um, and I've, I'm ne I've never been more grateful for a limitation in my life because I would not be such close friends with my brother and my sisters uh, as I am now without having that restriction of, you know, not really being allowed to ever have friends over or being able to leave the house after eight o'clock. So, um, so again, you know, there's there's a silver lining in 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 that. Right, right. So with all the reading and being a self-admitted bookworm as a child, um, did you find yourself kind of gravitating towards any sort of um, type of books? Were you more into the fantasy or the nonfiction as a child? Um, was there a certain mindset that you grew from just being such a avid reader? Gosh, that's such a great question. Um, pretty much if you put a book in front of me, I would read it. Um, fortunately, I didn't have anyone putting books in front of me. Uh, my parents were pretty hands-off books-wise. Um, my dad was always working, and uh, my mom wasn't a reader. And and so they had no idea what, what I was reading. And so I would go to the library and just pick stuff that looked interesting based on the cover or based on the title. And I stumbled into a lot of uh, very, very weird and interesting things that way. Um, one of my favorite books growing up was Matilda. And I felt, you know, a deep kinship with her because she is, you know, a, a very lonely, weird little child who loves books. And um, connects with her teacher, Miss Honey, and goes on all sorts of mental adventures. Um, so that that was really uh, one of my favorite things was reading about people uh, who were leading, I guess not lives similar to mine necessarily, but uh, that were living lives that I could relate to and that I could sort of live through. And so um, books were really my my great escape. They were sort of my substitute for my own freedom. So I couldn't leave the house, but the people I was reading about could. Nancy Drew could leave the house and she could go, um, you know, MacGyver her way uh, out of a locked trunk of a car with her high heel and a, you know, hairpin because she's amazing. Um, 
And and so I, I really uh, latched on to people who could really take action in their own lives in a way that I could not take action in my own life. Um, and so that was uh, that was one of my favorite things there. Um, I also uh, I, I think that when you grow up reading, you also I don't know if life imitates art necessarily, but I was trying to imitate the art that I was taking in. And so I started trying to write my own books and I, I wrote them from a very early age. And um, I don't know how much people will be interested in hearing this, but like, you know, writers tend to think they're maybe a little bit weird or a little bit off. Um, I wrote books that had a lot of blood in them, like a lot of blood and knives and crocodiles with giant teeth. And it's probably some stuff that would have been kind of disturbing. So how old were, um, how old were you when you were writing <laughs> these gore fests of books? Um, I was in kindergarten and first grade. I remember... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember showing... Uh, I was so proud of it. And I didn't know it was weird or wrong, right? Because like... I don't know, because um, you're a kid and you're weird and you you are still figuring out what morals are and what's socially acceptable. And so I remember I wrote this, uh, oh gosh, this incredibly graphic picture book where there's this this princess and she gets into a fight with like this, I don't know, alligator demon thing. And it like starts ripping her throat open and they're fighting in a river. And of course the river is turning red and like, I just have pages and pages of red crayon. And like, seriously, if, if you would have, seen a child creating this i don't know it's sort of like from a movie you're like oh this child is obviously possessed or you know there's something very yeah, dangerously yeah, yeah, yeah. wrong here um but no no i was just a very quiet obedient little kid uh with apparently a very gory and vivid imagination um so yes um so so, <laughs> so you you had this crazy imagination and you wrote your own books as a as a child and you know, elementary school, even kindergarten, you said. Um, so I'm going to guess that you were a pretty nerdy kid when you oh, first gosh, started yeah. school. Oh, oh, it was. Yeah. Yes. Did you? And this was before being nerdy was cool. This was before the Big Bang Theory. This was back when nerdy was not OK. Did you have any friends or was it just kind of books where you're only friends and that's how you kind of lived your fantasy? Yeah, um, I don't know if that sounds uh, relatable to listeners or just incredibly sad. But yeah, I was one of those weirdo loner kids uh, who I would like sneak books with me wherever I went to avoid talking to people. Um, I, I didn't like people. I didn't understand people. I didn't like the way that adults talked to me. And and I think about that now. And it's like, yeah, I don't I don't care to answer you how my day at school was like why would I do that <laughs> um but uh so so I would sort of find solace and friendship in books because they were characters uh they were loyal they were steadfast they cared about each other um because you know when you would go to school you would sort of have people who like sat around you in class or people um who put up with you and you know I was I was nice enough I was just a big weirdo um, who carried books around everywhere. And um, I rode the bus to school and I would always have a like a book in my book bag and I would like try to surreptitiously read it by like lifting up the flap of my book bag so nobody would see me reading because if they did, they would either like take my book and throw it or just mercilessly tease me for being a huge nerd, which I obviously was. And so... Um, yeah, I so, would I would pretty I pretty much just spent my childhood like hiding from people. <laughs> so not only were you the outcast, but you were also bullied. So you actually had to hide your reading from the kids on the school bus, which is really I did. That that's unfortunate. Um and so you were quite actively bullied, would you say? Yeah. Um I I think about it now like so when you're a little kid, um, kid politics are very vicious and cruel. And when you're a little kid, you don't really think about it. You're just like, oh, yeah, well, of course these people are mean to me. It's because I'm different. Um, when you're an adult and you're looking back on this, you're like, oh, my gosh, those kids were really, really mean. Um, and, and I almost, you know, you almost can't believe how incredibly mean and vicious kids can be to each other. Um, I was one of the favored picked on. And I can talk about this now because it's been, you know, 30 whatever years. Um, but it's, uh, gosh, looking back, it's almost funny. It's so sad. 
um, yeah, I'd have kids who would, you know, throw rocks at me and just like say all sorts of nasty things. It probably didn't help that I was weird looking, right? Um, because it, this didn't really show until I was in probably third, fourth, or fifth grade, but I, I have very severe scoliosis. And so I'm this, like, essentially I'm the Quasimodo of Cleveland, Ohio. I'm a hunchback, oh. and I, like, am secluding myself uh, from everyone else, and I'm reading books, and um, it's just uh, – so I, I look different. And also um, – like I mentioned before, my parents, you know, we were very, very poor. And so um, we couldn't go out to fancy stores like Walmart and buy new clothes or, you know, whatever. If Walmart was even a thing, then I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so what we did was people would leave garbage bags full of clothes on our doorstep or uh, we would get donations, garbage bags full of clothes from the church and we would sort of go through them. And these were like... These were like big parties for me because we'd get the garbage bag home and we would open it up in the living room and it would just be this like mad dash. My mom would lift out each item of clothing um, from the garbage bags and like hold it up. Oh, gosh, this is such a vivid memory. And if it looked like halfway decent, halfway in style, my sister and I would like fight over it. Because we were so desperate to be um, accepted. Mm -hmm. And it's it's funny now because I, I feel like, or, you know, gosh, maybe this was just me putting limitations on myself. But, like, you know, you see all sorts of, like, cool punk rock kids who are like, oh, yeah, I make my own clothes. Or, like, yeah, I purposefully wear stuff from the 70s. Like, I was wearing stuff from the 70s. Like, I'm, like, the original uh terrible hipster i was wearing stuff <laughs> from the 70s and the 80s when it was definitely before it was cool um so that also kind of uh, uh compounded into the whole uh getting teased a whole lot thing so um with the, with the bullying did you ever reach out to your parents about that and say hey i'm you know really getting picked on i'm sure they i'm sure they pieced you know two and two together at points you know, I don't know. What a what an interesting question. And it, it seems obvious. And like as an adult now, I feel like if I had kids, I would be, I don't know, perceptive of this. But I don't I don't want to blame my parents either. I, I very purposefully did not tell them anything because um, there, if there's one thing that is worse than being like a nerd who gets bullied, it's being a nerd who tattles on you for bullying them and like brings in adults and like makes things worse. And so, no, I just... Uh, I just kept it to myself, honestly. Yeah, and I think, you know, and this is, you know, bad bad for you, but good for, you know, today's. I really do think that, you know, here in 2018, it is more socially acceptable to deal with bullying and talk about it. While in the 80s, I, you know, it's kind of like the cliche movies where they just told you to kind of toughen up if you yeah. were to say something. So I, you know, there's definitely that, that time gap there as well. There absolutely is. And I feel I'm so excited. I know that kids are, you know, and I also didn't have to put up with uh, anything on the internet. I Luckily, I did not have to put up with cyberbullying or like any, you know, kids saying nasty things, spreading viral things about me online. Oh my gosh, I totally sound like an old lady right now. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I, I think that kids will always find a way to be cruel to each other. And, and this is funny me saying this because I'm a totally positive person. Um, and that's one of the, the ways that uh, I've grown and changed is sort of going from being a, a fatalist, like, well, I guess I'm always going to get bullied to being like, yeah, no, mm -mm, no, you're not going to, you're not going to make fun of me. No. So. All right. So with the, with the teasing and bullying, is there, is there any specific events or any specific stories you can remember? Or is it just kind of all thrown in the back of your brain? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it was, uh, it was a winter day in Cleveland, Ohio. And in Cleveland, the sky is never blue. It's always just sort of flat and gray because of the lake effect. And so um, it was just this very flat gray day. And I was walking up a hill around a corner. And I was going from uh, my bus stop to my house. And it was maybe three or four blocks. It was, it was maybe a little bit more of a walk than you would think it would be for a bus stop for a little kid. Uh, I was in first grade. And, um, I, you know, I was not, a, I was not popular. I was not a big hit. And, um, I don't even know what prompted this. I don't think anything actually happened. I think that 
um, there was just an opportunity, and the opportunity was me. And so I'm walking, and um, gosh, I remember this so vividly. So I'm walking, and I even want to say it was like northwest, and there was a breeze, and the sky was gray, and all the trees around me were bare. And I'm walking up to this place where usually I take a shortcut. So there was this little, um, I guess, copse of trees where there was cut through it. Um, I could cut through into a neighbor's lawn and get to my house a little bit quicker. But I remember hearing something behind me and it was laughter. And if you've been bullied, like hearing laughter behind you is not a good sign. Um, hearing people talk about you, feeling that there's people purposefully following you, it is just not a good feeling. And so I just remember uh, getting that sort of uh, very unpleasant cold shiver, the uh, sort of fight or flight panic rising in my chest as uh, I felt these two kids um, sort of closing on me from behind. And um, I even remember their names, but I won't, I won't disclose those here just to, to be that, be a kind of good person. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I was walking northwest up the street and all of a sudden I hear them start to yell and they're laughing and yelling and uh, chunks of ice and rock just begin to hit me from behind. And I remember thinking, you know, because I'm a little kid, I'm going to die. And I didn't want to die. <laughs> And it was just, it was such a very real moment for me to turn around and see these two kids just looking at me with this hatred. And I didn't understand why I was hated and I didn't understand why they wanted to physically hurt me, but they were physically hurting me. And it just, it still even does not compute to this day. Uh, random cruelty just does not, uh, it, it just doesn't fit into my brain somehow. So did you, what did you do in that situation? Did you just run? Did you speed walk? Did you just take it? I mean, what was your next step? Yeah, I took it. I took it for a while. And, you know, because there was the adage that, oh, if you ignore the bullies, they'll go away. And so uh, it turns out if you ignore the bullies that are throwing rocks at the back of your head, the bullies will uh, actually continue throwing rocks at the back of your head um, until they sort of get a rise out of you. And so um, I kind of turned around and I saw who it was and I saw that they were stooping to pick up more rocks and ice. And I was like, you know what, just forget this. I'm just going to run. And so I ran home. And I remember looking over my shoulder the whole way because, of course, the next thing I thought was, what if they follow me inside my house, you know? Um, but I ran pretty quickly. I avoided the shortcut because it was dark and enclosed and I had at least a little bit of a survival uh, uh, instinct. So I, I ran home and I got home and I lied to my mother when she asked why I was out of breath. I said, oh, I just ran home. And the back of my head, like they hadn't broken the skin and I wasn't bleeding or anything, but I just remember feeling so alone, feeling so alone. And it was really a feeling that stayed with me uh, just throughout, uh, throughout the rest of my uh, education, uh, going to school and knowing that there were always kids there who would be willing to uh, throw rocks and ice at you. Like, it's just a, uh, it's, it's compelling in the worst sort of way. Right. So it had to have gotten better at some point throughout, you know, as you, as people matured, as the age group matured, um, did it get any it better did. as you got into middle school, high school? It did. It did. Um, it, it, it got worse for a while because I feel like it always gets worse before it gets better. Um, and uh, it, I remember I finally found a place where I fit. And that was, I think that's very important to anybody who's, I don't even want to say anybody who's growing up because I feel like adults feel like this too. Um, 
But in middle school, uh, one of my teachers uh, reached out to me and connected with me, and she just ended up being a, a really great mentor in my life. And she saw that I loved books and reading, and uh, unlike other teachers who, like, caught me sneaking books under my desk, like, she didn't tell me to put my books away, which I really appreciated. Um, she just let me sit there and, and read my books during class, and, and bless her heart, that was such a gift. Um, but uh, she started this club at school for writers, and um, we discovered soon uh, in our writers club that there was this competition called Power of the Pen. And so, uh, gosh, I haven't talked about this in years, but I joined it, and it was competitive writing for 7th and 8th graders. And uh, they would give you a topic. You would have a certain amount of time to compose a short story, and then the stories uh, would be judged. And so I, I really found that um, for the first time in my life, because, you know, I was not great at sports being uh, sort of physically different from other people. I could never pass my presidential physical fitness exam or whatever because my body just didn't move like other people's did. Um, I, I, I excelled at something and it was great. And uh, the other people in this writing club were writers, and it was amazing. And for the first time, um, I, I felt a little bit less alone. So you turned from, you know, the books and the reading, you know, kind of tailed that into writing as your escape, as your, your outlet for dealing with all this. And that's how you kind of found your group, which is amazing. And so you kept the writing going throughout your education, I'm assuming. I did. I absolutely did. And uh, you asked me earlier what sort of books and novels I gravitated toward. And um, it was it was the weirdest fantasy and sci-fi. It was, uh, yeah, it, it just was anything with time travel and quantum physics and, and just, you know, just the weirdest stuff you can absolutely imagine. And that's what I ended up writing, too. And um, that's kind of the, my love of that has sort of... Uh, you know, stayed with me to this day. But yeah, I uh, my first novel that I wrote was on an Apple Classic 2, uh, which is one of those old computers that looks like a bread box standing up on its end. And uh, yeah, it, it filled up, oh gosh, 17 or 18 floppy disks. And then uh, one day the computer got corrupted and I lost my entire novel. Oh no. But, you know, it's it's a thing. I just remember, like, having a meltdown, and I couldn't explain to anybody in my house, like, why it was so important that I had lost my novel. Because I, I remember my mom's like, Sarah, why are you throwing this fit? And I was like, I lost my novel. You don't understand. It's gone. I've worked on it for months and months, and it's yeah. gone. And she's like, well, just write a new one. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Just I am the tortured <laughs> young artist. Right, right. You know, like, just write a new one. Um that's so I don't know. I, I feel like I'm rambling now. So. No, you're fine. You're fine. Um, so it's as a fellow book reader and writing, you know, lover, um, it, it almost writes itself that a a person that felt isolated as a child, you know, gravitates towards space where that's mm -hmm. like the ultimate isolation. Do you think there's any correlation or you just kind of like the sci-fi stuff. Oh my gosh. What a, what a rich and interesting question. And I, I kind of wonder, you know, now that I'm a little bit older and, and I've gone through, you know, college writing courses and I've done the sort of analysis and, and all of that stuff. And I've learned to do that with my own writing. I kind of wonder if we ever write anything that's not autobiographical, right? Like mm -hmm. even if you're writing characters who are vastly different from you are, um, we're all, you know, we're all stuck in this loop of our own story, retelling it over and over and over again. And we're retelling it in different ways with different characters and in different scenarios. But you are absolutely right. We are just telling our own story over and over and over again. Um, so life, life did. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so all these characters that you've written throughout the years um, in your current podcast, Girl in Space, um, which we'll officially plug later, but, um, Yay. <laughs> um, your, your main character, do you, when you're writing her, are you kind of, you know, is it almost like writing your, your own story? In a way, yes. Um, but in a way, no. Uh, so this is going to be a, a non-answer a little bit. Um, 
I, I think that in a way, and I think Stephen King said this years and years ago, you know, every, every character you create, every character you write is partially you. Just like every story you tell is partially your own story. And so there's elements of me in this character. Um, her distrust of people, her... Um, so she's... The, the main character's name is X, just the letter X. And she struggles with a lot of philosophical things. Um, so you can see a few tie-ins here, maybe. She struggles with being alone and enjoying being alone while feeling obligated to be in the presence of other people, but also realizing that maybe she likes being with other people a little bit, but still distrusting them. So a lot of that, yes, does come from uh, things that I've experienced in my lifetime. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say that the character is me. Um, the character is uh, maybe maybe one like peeled down version of me, but really, that's what every character is in a way. Right, that makes sense. Um, so I'm gonna take a step back, um, head, yeah. ba- head back to your life. Um, so the next, the next, you know, the first, you know, really big crossroads that I find in people's life is senior year of high school. You know, that's when people join the military, go to college, get their mm-hmm. first real job. Um, so tell me about your, the end of your high school career. What, what were you, what were you um, planning on doing? Oh man. Oh, what a great question. So um, you're absolutely right about the end of high school being so, um, I don't know. So so integral to our to our formation. I'm going to actually take a step back even and say that um, I think my turning point came when uh, I was 16. So I was a junior in high school. Um, I was a little younger than everyone else. Um, So I was 16 and I had my spine surgery, which corrected my scoliosis. And so um, I kind of went from being a hunchback that looked like a huge weirdo Uh, If you know anything about scoliosis, uh, it's a curvature of the spine, and mine was 57 or 58 degrees, which is very, very severe. Uh, The base of my spine had turned all the way around, and it was growing into my heart and my lungs. And so um, a lot of kids with scoliosis will get uh, treatment, you know, via brace, or they'll have to walk around with um, some kind of equipment. For me, they just went straight to surgery. And so, uh, yeah, so I spent my 16th birthday in the hospital and uh, they straightened out my spine and put in a whole bunch of bone grafts. So uh, so now my, uh, my spine is just one giant bone. Um, so, which means that I'm never going to shrink when I'm old, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> I'm going to be, I'm going to be this like, and I'm also very tall, you know, it's just like all the ways that I can stand out and be super awkward. I am. So I'm like super tall and lanky. I'm like six feet. So I'm just going to be this like six foot tall little old lady, um, wandering around flailing aimlessly one day. So it's going to be amazing. Um, so that was really the turning point for me when, um, when I saw that, that problems that I thought had been insurmountable could be fixed. And so I, I had this spinal surgery, and I had to learn how to walk again. It was very, uh, very, very, uh, I don't know, dangerous or complex, or I don't know how you describe surgeries. But um, when I was out, I, I was uh, I looked a little bit more like a normal person, uh, maybe a little bit at least. And so um, I started to be a little bit more outgoing. Um, more confident? I tried out for, yeah, uh, yes, yes, yes. A little bit more confident. I was still shy as heck. Um, I I'd like I never asked anyone out. I was just this like I was terrified. I think of people secretly still. I was terrified that you know they would throw rocks and ice at my head, essentially, uh, whether literally or figuratively. Um, and so uh, so yeah, I tried out for drum major for the marching band, and I got that. And it, it really was a, a turning point for me. And I realized that um, that I was capable and that I was allowed to take action and make my own decisions. And growing up in a, in a very conservative and restrictive household, um, that, that was a very eye-opening for me. So so yes, the end of high school was was a good time. Um, so, so there's a, sorry to, um, yeah, interrupt. No. so there's a lot of growth that I'm seeing here because drum major, you know, you just kind of nonchalantly threw that in, but yeah, that's huge. You're the, you are the centerpiece that everyone looks at, right? 
Yeah. And so um, going from this isolated childhood, you had the surgery, you got more confident, and now all of a sudden you're leading the marching band, which is, you just kind of blew past it, but I think that's outstanding. <laughs> Well, thank you. And actually, like, now that I think about it, I'm like, where did that even come from? Um, I don't know what possessed me to do that, but I'm really glad I did because uh, that was when um, I'm very big into community leadership now uh, uh, as, an, as an adult. And I, I really feel like that was the first stepping point when I realized, oh, I enjoy uh, leading other people. I enjoy um, what and what I enjoyed about it and why I wanted to be drum major in the first place was because, um, oh, gosh, see, I'm even a marching band dork. Like, this is just, <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love it. I love judge. it. Um, the, the drum major before me, uh, she had also, she was very shy, but I saw that she was very capable and I was like, oh, I'd like to show people that I am capable. Um, I've always been good at music and so uh, I've, I had a good sense of rhythm. And so, um, yeah, I, I tried out and I got it. And for me, it was it was very validating. Um, like you said, uh, it, it might have been because of the confidence I got after, you know, getting my spine straightened back out. Uh, part of it, too, was just um, I found that I was caring less and less and less about what people thought of me. Um, I, I think I was kind of done having other people define me on their terms. And I kind of wanted to... Uh, jump into a role where, as this other drum major had proved to me, um, I could make other people feel valued and safe and loved because, you know, as you mature, you become more empathetic and you realize that other people around you are suffering too. It's not just you who's a victim of the world. Um, everybody around you is going through something. And so um, in this leadership role, I found that I was connecting with other students who, you know, I hadn't known had also been bullied or they were going through tough family stuff at home or, uh, you know, they, they were struggling in school with their grades. And so I was able to connect with people, uh, with my fellow students in that way through empathy and through um, just listening to them, hearing their stories and uh, leading them musically. So it sounds a little weird, but that's what happened. That's awesome. So we're finally at the point where you are starting to grow and mature and define yourself. So what was your next step after you finished high school? I went to college because I didn't know that you couldn't not go to college. I don't know if all those double negatives work, but um, I was always a very good student. I had uh, straight A's because, again, nerd. And um, I got... uh, I got a scholarship, and so I was able to attend college, which I might not have been able to do otherwise. And so um, I went to college for four years, and um, I, I feel like people expected that I would just turn into this crazy rebel and come back all, like, tattooed and pierced, but I didn't. I mostly stayed uh, I mostly stayed quiet and weird, um, and I never stopped writing. Writing became the way that I lived and, and led my life and expressed myself. And um, the college atmosphere enriched that even more. Um, and so, yeah, so I found myself writing even more. Um, I did not go to parties. Um, I had a friend uh, who I met later in life who's like, oh, my gosh, Sarah, you wasted your college years. You know, you didn't, you didn't go to any crazy parties. You didn't do spring break. And I'm like, no, but... I wrote an anthology of short stories that I'm really proud of. So there's that. <laughs> so was there was there anything besides the writing that you kind of, you know, there was no no boyfriends, no, you said no parties. Um, did you make new friends, anything along those lines? Or was it pretty much just show up, go to school, write, repeat? No, I made, I actually, I made friends. Um, college was a great place for that um, because nobody knows that you were this like horrible, disgusting grub of a person uh, throughout your entire life. Like college just lets you have a new start. And so I went and other people there were nerds because it's college and it was uh, a nice big school. And so uh, no, I found I found a lot of friends who were just as nerdy as I was. I even like dated some people. Um, and, and so so that was probably good for me emotionally. I met my husband there. 
Um, I was still interested in music, and so uh, I was invited to join a... Do you remember ska music? Oh, I love ska. Real Big okay. Fish. Oh, yes. I've yes. only been one okay. concert in my whole entire life, and it was Real Big Fish in San Diego. <laughs> anyway, sorry. No, dude, that's awesome. So uh, I asked that because um, I, was invo- I was invited to join the ska band, and this was really my big group of friends. And so we all had a ska band together, and I played uh, alto and tenor saxophone and bongos and a few other like just random things whenever we needed it. But um, that's where I met my husband, who was the leader of the band, and the uh, he wrote all the music and he sang backup vocals and played piano. And so yeah, um, that was a that was a big part of my college life was being in a band. We even recorded an album and all sorts of stuff. I have to listen to this album. Please tell me that I can find it somewhere. I don't know if you can. It was kind of before did we have we have a bunch of CDs in a box in our basement. Um, but I don't I don't think you can find it anywhere. And maybe that's for the best. Your your listeners on your podcast that listen to this <laughs> are going to be so disappointed. I just want you to know that. <laughs> yeah, this was a uh, yeah, this was before uh, or maybe right before like Facebook was becoming a thing. Um, oh no, but uh, maybe maybe if you're if your listeners out there if you're if you're very good, um, maybe maybe I'll send you a copy of our CD. Yes, please do, please do. So, <laughs> so your life is kind of you know uh, from the outside looking in, it's looking kind of like a movie. You know, you're the uh, self-proclaimed nerdy girl who um, married the the band guy. You know, that's that's in pretty much every uh, romantic comedy there is. You know what? Isn't that funny, though? Like, and I don't even know if that's how I'm framing the story now. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. And, and like, I mean, it's true. It's all true. Um, you can fact check all of it. But it's it's the way that we frame these stories. You know, do we select details that um, sort of fit into the she's all that mold or whatever? Um, I never became a, 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 you know, truly gorgeous, supermodel-y person like Rachel Lee Cook. But um no, but I, I found people that I was happy with and people who encouraged and supported me, and that was just really, really beautiful. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so you you finished your degree, and you kind of reached that next crossroads in your life. So you knew you loved writing. You were writing throughout your whole entire life. You haven't stopped. Um, what did you get your degree in? Uh, let's see. Oh, boy. Uh, I did like a triple major because, again... I couldn't stop taking classes, and so I just ended up with a whole bunch of things. But uh, basically, it was in English creative writing. Nothing unexpected. Okay, okay. So what what would you what was your first step? You know, you graduated and you wake up as a brand new quote unquote adult. You know, what's what's your first move? Uh, my first move was to become very confused. Um, I I thought that I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I wanted to live in this beautiful safe haven of, uh, you know, tweed jackets and and pipes and autumn leaves at a university, um, because that was really one of the first places that I felt safe and and felt okay being myself. And so, of course, you know, who doesn't want to perpetuate that? So I was like, oh, yeah, I want to be a professor. And so um, I talked to one of my professors, and I was like, I want to be a professor. And he's like, Sarah, you do not want to be a professor. And um, that really, really uh, blew my mind because I was like, no, no, you don't understand. I want to be a professor. I want to write and I want to teach and I want to live in this beautiful, isolated academic community where no one can ever hurt me. And uh, so I had applied to all these graduate programs. And uh, then I, I had this conversation with this professor and he's like, you know what? why don't you go out into the real world and like work for a few years and then decide if you want to go back to get your PhD because, you know, school will always be there. Um, And I said, well, 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 okay. And this was right when the recession was about to hit. And I don't know if my professor knew that or not, but uh, tenure for professors was pretty much going away. And so basically I I had almost signed my life over to become a uh, eternal grad assistant, which would have been a nightmare. Um, So anyway, so uh, I found myself scrambling for a job and landed a job because I'd always been a bit of a computer nerd too, which I left out of this story this entire time. I ended up at a software company where I was uh, analyzing license agreements. So, you know, when you like 
uh, update your iTunes and you have to read that license agreement that nobody reads, you just click agree and you move on. I was reading those for a living and it was just just awful. I'm falling asleep <laughs> just hearing about it. I know, right? <laughs> so, um, so that was my first job. It was, uh, it was with a global software company in Chicago. So I, it was really funny because I was like living this, what I thought would be this glamorous job. Um, I had a, a garden apartment in, uh, gosh, what is now the Ukrainian village. Uh, and I guess now it's really popular and cool. But when I was there, it was just like this garbage place. And so, uh, it, I, so I was living uh, downtown, and I was uh, working out of the Citibank building, uh, which is right on top of Ogilvy Station. And I was like, I should feel really cool and fulfilled and worldly, like living in this big city in Chicago and just just being super cool working for a software company. But really, I was just super miserable because I was alone and it was really expensive to live there. And so um, I feel like that's when I learned a lot of my uh, difficult adult lessons that everybody needs to learn. So, so you know, getting to the point that you're at now, what were, you know, what were some of the challenges you faced? You know, you said that you had this you know, on paper, glamorous job, but it wasn't as great as it was, you know, what were your, you know, internal struggles just trying to find your passion? Was that your biggest um, hump that you had to overcome at this point? Yeah, it was, um, it was finding my passion, which was writing. It was the, the impossibility of making a living doing what I loved. Because Everyone had told me, like, why are you, you know, oh, you're a creative writing major. Well, you better get a day job, you know, ha-ha. Because um, nobody nobody believes in you. It, the, the funny thing is, even the people who say they believe in you, they also want you to be realistic, which I appreciate. Um, so my parents were always kind of like, hey, why don't, why don't you major in something that's not English? Why don't you major in, like, I don't know, biology or, like, you know, become a vet or something, make some money? Um, no, I wanted to be a writer. And so, uh, I was working this terrible job and trying to understand how things like 401ks work because nobody, nobody tells you any of this, um, in high school or college. And so you're suddenly thrown into this, this world and you're alone, but I'm comfortable being alone. And I, and I thrive a little bit when I'm alone, uh, just because that's what I'm used to. And so I said, you know what? Okay, fine. Uh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do what I want to do, even though uh, I don't have a PhD. I want to teach people. Uh, Even though I'm not a published writer, I don't care. I still want to be a published writer. Even though I don't have any connections anywhere, uh, I still want to be uh, a successful writer. And so um, I just decided I was done taking other people's leftovers and scraps. And so um, I started a writer's group in downtown Chicago, which sounds, again, a lot more glamorous than it actually was. It was a horrible failure. Only a few people would show up, but I learned a lot from that as well. Oh boy, you're getting into the Sarah Learns All the Lessons uh, area of my life. Well, that's um, that's that's what we want though, right? Because this is, <laughs> this is, this is you, you know, your story and, you know, hope maybe there's somebody out there that's in your situation that they were in right and yeah so maybe they can relate to this so you know these these are the moments that i think are you know the triumphs are important but these are just as important when people are listening to this you know there's probably uh you know a ton of wannabe authors that listen to you religiously and i don't know you you want to uh, discount these stories, but I think these are the important ones. You know, the the failure of a book club and uh, being all alone. Is there any like specific stories, like the first day of the book club meetup? And oh yeah, that is yeah. there anything that you could tell along those lines? There absolutely is. So, um, so I was working at the software company, and I told everyone because 
When you love something, you want other people to love it too. And you expect that if they just try it, they'll love it as much as you do. And so I told everyone that I worked with that I was starting a writer's group. And I said, you know what? Everyone can write. I was very empowering about it. I said, you know what? Even if you just want to try just a really short poem, if you want to write a haiku, if you want to write a short story, um, everyone is welcome. We're going to meet at the Flatiron Building. Um, we're going to meet at Filter and have amazing coffee. And I told everyone I knew in Chicago about this, um, including some friends who had moved there from college. And we met several times because I'm very stubborn. And uh, two people showed up, max. We, we met probably about, oh gosh, nine or 10 times. And every time we met, I would get two pity friends who were just there because they felt bad that Sarah was trying to lead this writer's group in Chicago. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't write anything. They would just show up and drink coffee and nod sympathetically. Bless their hearts. What beautiful people these were to show up for me. Um, when, I'm, when I was in this like weird place of trying to lead something and having it not catch on um, because you know you're, you you have expectations you expect that people are going to come in the door and wave and say hey I'm here for the writers group and then the reality is you're sitting there with a slowly cooling cup of coffee watching people who are way cooler and more successful than you can ever dream of being move in and out of their own lives and your life and you just kind of sit there and you're like okay this is happening. What can I do next time to make sure it is not this big of a failure? What can I do next time to be less disappointed? And you can do two things. And this is where I learned that um, if you want something, you have to do it. You have to take action. And I tell this actually, I tell this to writers now all the time. Um, I, I'll tell them that, you know, do you want to write and publish your book? Um, you need to get off the couch. You know, nobody's going to come ring your doorbell and say, hey, I heard you're a writer. I heard that you that you really want to write a novel. I'd love to sign you right now. I'd love to give you this big check. Like nobody's going to do that. You have to you have to act. You have to drive your own life. You have to get in the driver's seat. You have to start failed writers groups and you have to write failed novels. You just do. Um, and so that's that's what I did. I kept starting failed writers groups and I started writing failed novels. Um, and I just kept doing that and I worked through jobs that I hated. Um, with people who were not, uh, well, I won't say anything bad about any of the people. I worked with a lot of weird people. But eventually, uh, what, what really changed my life the most was relationships with mentors. And I just can't say enough good things about um, running into different people in the professional life. Eventually, uh, I, I got a job as a marketer. This is all very boring. But I got a job as a marketer for a bank. Um, and I, and I did marketing, traditional marketing for five years. And then I moved into digital marketing where I built websites and did Google ads and all that sort of stuff and, uh, website content strategy, uh, for another five years. And in those 10 years of my professional career, I met a lot of very interesting people, but I only met a lot of interesting people because I was able to sort of put myself out there and say, hey, you're really cool and I want to learn from you. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? I bought so many cups of coffee for so many people. And most people, um, if, if they're in a position that you want to be in, chances are they've had help getting there themselves and most people are eager to pay it forward. And so um, so many gracious, beautiful people were willing to sit down and have coffee with me and I would ask them stupid questions like, hey, how do I ask for a raise? Or, hey, uh, do you know any leadership opportunities? Or, um, hey, what is podcasting? Um, and so uh, I bought a lot of coffees and now I try to do the same thing. So uh, I'm going to sound really old, but like young people who come to me and they're like, I don't, I want to be a writer and I don't know where to start. I'll tell them, buy someone a cup of coffee. You know, maybe start with me. I don't know. Maybe I can help you. Um, there is nothing more beautiful and rewarding in life than being able to pay forward the help that someone else has given you. Like this is, I live for this. So you had your set of, of growing opportunities over these 10 years, le learning and just standing and listening. And so where did the first success in the career that you wanted uh, start to come in at this point? 
So I found that um, all of the the nerdy skills that I had sort of been made fun of for actually were very valuable in the marketplace. Um, critical thinking, uh, ability to read, communication, being well-spoken, um, and, and understanding uh, a little bit of computer programming and code. Um, th those all sort of came together. And I was like, oh, okay, so all these things that I was sort of ridiculed for, um, I can actually make a very lucrative career out of doing. And so um, I, I really moved forward in the uh, digital marketing and advertising space. Um, I started doing, oh boy, because of encouragement from one mentor, um, I took on my very first public speaking gig and um, realized that I loved it. I loved talking to people, especially about things I was passionate about. And uh, you, you sort of marry that up with the fact that I was still writing at this time, despite so many failures. I can't even tell you um, how many writing projects I failed at. I failed constantly, constant failure. I can't even hammer that home enough. I failed constantly. And uh, one of my friends uh, noticed that I had a failed blog and noticed that I really enjoyed speaking and said, Sarah, why are you not podcasting? It's 2013. Why are you not podcasting? And I was like, I don't even know what podcasting is. And uh, this is my good friend, Peter Adal, who I'm now uh, just really, really good friends with. Um, he had a successful podcast at the time called 168 Opportunities. And uh, he was speaking at the New Media Expo in Las Vegas about podcasting. And uh, was pretty much just like, all right, I want you to give it a try. I want you to do this, and I know you can do this. You can borrow this mic. Uh, have fun. Here's a YouTube video that will explain the basics of podcasting. Uh, so based on that, um, I really sat down and got my nerdiness going and I was like oh my gosh this is awesome this is like I love learning new stuff this is just like school uh, I taught myself everything um, with the help of some very generous and kind youtubers um, including uh, Daniel J Lewis and Cliff Ravenscraft both of whom offer uh, free podcasting tutorials and assistance online um, and I basically turned my blog, my horrible failed blog that got like one reader a month uh, into a quasi successful podcast for writers. And so uh, that's kind of how I got here. And um, I, I wanna point out that there's no such thing as an overnight success. There really is no point at which I became successful. And I really, really want to stress that. I want to stress that so bad because there's this expectation that like you're a podcaster and you're doing it for like a year and a half and like finally Oprah realizes that you exist and you go on the Oprah show and your your life is lived happily ever after. That does not happen. Um, you podcast and you fail, but you keep doing it and you keep failing and you keep doing it and you don't give up. And suddenly three and a half, four, five years later, you realize oh, I have a very popular show. And oh, I'm getting very good downloads. And oh, some people look at me and they say, oh, you're an overnight success. And I'm like, oh my gosh, can I tell <laughs> you about all of my failures? Um, so success is, is slow and it needs other people to help nurture it. Um, I'm so grateful to all of the people who have mentored me in my life. Um, it comes from taking action, it comes from asking questions, it comes from uh, being curious, and it comes from never giving up, no matter, to sound super cliche, no matter how many times you fail. That's awesome. So that kind of brings us to where you are now. And you said you're married, um, successful. Is there anything that you're still struggling with? Is there anything that you're you oh, know, still yes. battling. <laughs> you know what? It's funny. Uh, the older I get, the more I realize uh, how much more and more I'm struggling, despite the fact that it looks like I'm successful. Like, like, okay, I was in my 20s and I was like, oh my gosh, life is so hard. I can't wait till I'm in my 30s and I have everything figured out. And now I'm in my 30s and I'm like, oh my gosh, I was such an idiot when I was in my 20s. Like, holy crap, like this is hard. Like, like aging parents and like mortgages and work-life balance and realizing that you're you're aging and you might not have time to do everything you wanted to do in your one precious beautiful little life. Um, 
so yeah, so, so in some aspects, I, I feel successful, and I'm okay talking about that. Uh, you know, I was taught at an early age in my very religious household to be humble and not um, talk about things. But that's one of the things that I learned is uh, if you don't talk about yourself, if you don't talk yourself up, no one else will. You, ha- you have to be your greatest cheerleader sometimes. And so um, we, we paid off our house recently, which allowed me to leave my full-time job, which allowed me to start a second uh, podcast, which is called Girl in Space, which we've talked a little bit about uh, in the duration of this episode. Um, I am uh, doing a lot of mentorship in my community. I'm doing a lot of community leadership. Um, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm in a good place. I know a lot of amazing and interesting people. Um, but at the same time, life is not perfect and it never will be perfect. Um, I still have some uh, physical disabilities um, that, you know, that are just part of life. Um, there's never enough money, ever, 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 ever. Because even, you know, after you pay off your house, then there's other things. And um, so, so you just kind of have to, keep, you have to keep going and living and being willing to fail. And just to keep looking for new opportunities and embracing them when they come your way. That's awesome. So what would you say to the, you know, 20-year-old writer out there that just had their he or she's, you know... 20th blog fail you know and they're listening right now what would you what would you want to say to that person you know what keep failing seriously and you know what intentionally fail intentionally fail say you know what I'm gonna write another blog post and it might fail and that's okay I'm gonna freaking write it anyway you know that's how I started girl in space I, I wanted to like fail my way through something new I wanted to fail my way through audio drama um and so I was like, oh, I'm curious in audio drama. I'm curious about it. I think maybe I could do it. I like storytelling. I like podcasting. This is like both of those mixed together in a delicious smoothie. So like, why not drink it up? And so I, I, I wrote a pilot episode and I recorded it and I threw it out onto the internet and I said, well, there's another failure. Uh, so that's cool. I've done that and I, I have a grasp on how to do it now. So really when I move forward on it and I decide to start my real audio drama, um, I, I'll kind of know what I'm doing. I know the ropes. Uh, <laughs> um, it turns out a lot of people from my other show, the Right Now podcast, uh, tuned in to Girl in Space and sort of uh, all of those beautiful people uh, who I had met along the way also listened to it. And the number of people that subscribed and downloaded episodes, bumped it up to the homepage of iTunes, where it sort of took off. Um, and uh, again, there is no such thing as an overnight success. You you have to create your own luck. You have to work really hard. Um, but yeah, my, my intentional failure uh, that was this pilot episode of Girl in Space took off. And then I had to sit down and say, oh, crap, now I have to come up with more episodes for this <laughs> show. <laughs> So yeah, so that's uh, that's that was my that was my failure that ended up not being a failure. So, you know what? If you want to do something, then do it. Nothing is stopping you. You can create anything. I I created a successful audio drama um, with zero budget. Everything I do is is free. Everything I use is free. Um, I started the Right Now podcast with a borrowed microphone and a bunch of towels uh, for you know, for audio sound uh, absorption. Um, I use Audacity to edit. I use um, all of my sounds are from freesound.org. My music is all Creative Commons. Um, Don't let any of that stop you. That's awesome. So where can people find you? Where can people reach you? Where can people listen to your podcasts or your audio dramas? (laughs) Absolutely. Sorry. Um, People can find me by going out to sarahwerner.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-W-E-R-N-E-R.com. You can find the Right Now podcast. That's right as in writing because we're writers, you know, haha puns. Uh, You can find the Right Now podcast and the Girl in Space podcast out on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, wherever you can find podcasts. They'll be out there waiting for you. you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, just look for Sarah Ray Werner. That's my middle name is R H E A. 
And um, you can also find me out under Girl in Space Pod and the Right Now Podcast. So I'm kind of all over the place. I need to probably consolidate my social media stuff because it's unmanageable. But uh, pretty much if you look for me, you should be able to find me. So thanks again for coming on. It it was so fun. Um, oh, good. You, well, thank you for hosting me. Yeah, you you know you have a really interesting and amazing story and i think that's that's fantastic and you're willing to help others which is you know i think that you know that's what we what we should be doing with our like you said our one simple life our one amazing life is trying to just reach out and have human experiences and help other people absolutely that is absolutely what life is about Hey, thanks for listening to another episode of Our Unique Life. You know, all these stories are so different, and I love listening to them, and I think they'll impact different people in different ways, and that's what's so special about this. If you have any suggestions for me, things you like, things you don't like, please let me know. Um, I'm looking to improve, and you can find me on Twitter at Our Unique Life, separated by underscores, and I also have a brand new website. That's ouniquelife.blueberry.net, and that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y.net. If you'd like to be a guest on my show, we know everyone's got an amazing story. Even if you don't think you do, trust me, you do. Um, if you go on my website, you can figure out information on how to do that, and I'd love to hear it. So until then, thank you. Do you have any um Do you have any go-to jokes? <laughs> I do and it's terrible. I what's love green? terrible. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay, what's green but turns red at the flick of a switch? I have no idea. A frog in a blender. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, isn't that the worst? I love it. <laughs>